Hi everyone, welcome back to Attention to Detail. This is Jacob. I am joined today by a fantastic return guest to break down one of our lesser-known symphonies. This is going to be the second episode in our series where we're going to look at some symphonies that maybe not all of our listeners have heard before, heard of before, but there's some great pieces and we want to highlight them alongside some of the greatest symphonies that we all do know. So here to join me back for return appearance is Sasha Skolnick-Brower. Thanks so much for, for coming on again, Sasha. Thanks for having me. Really of, happy to, to be back. Of course. So you are no longer in New York, you said? Yeah, uh, we, we got out um, a couple weeks ago and are in Boston now, which is nice just to have a little more space to walk around outside. Yeah. Um, but just kind of, you know, hanging on. Excellent. Well, yeah, like us all, we're just, we're hanging on, but I'm excited to learn a little bit about this piece that you've chosen for today, which is Saint-Saëns Organ Symphony. Before we dive into the actual symphony, um, why did you choose this particular piece? Um, So I want to talk about his third symphony because it was until recently for me, um, a piece that I kind of didn't have any interest in. Um, And I think that some of the misconceptions or or assumptions that I made might be pretty similar to those that other people might make. Um, And it it makes for an interesting discussion to kind of figure out what he's actually doing. Um, I would say that going into it, before I knew it, I kind of assumed, okay, Sanson's romantic, even late romantic composer, writes a symphony with an organ, it's bound to be just like super heavy and loud and overly emotional in, in kind of some of the negative late romantic, um, I guess, stereotypes that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was written in 1886, which was an, uh, an interesting time in France to be writing symphonies at all. It's, like, it's hard to actually think of a symphony by a French composer Around that time, you know, we all think of Debussy and then Ravel coming um, basically at the turn of the 20th century, um, a little before, but we don't really have a good sense of what's going on before that. Um, And basically what was going on was there are these kind of warring attitudes of how to take French music in the next direction. Um, Some people were super Wagner fans, um, like Franck. Um, he wrote a symphony too. A lot of you might know his violin sonata, which is maybe the most famous thing that that we hear of his. Jacob, you've probably played it. I have played it. Have you um, Have you played it on the cello? I, I have. Yeah, everybody. Yeah. I guess everybody's played it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, Frank wrote a symphony. He was super Wagner heavy, as were all of his students. Sansos comes along, and he's kind of like, "Nah, this is annoying. How everybody's so pro Wagner in this way." Um, I'm I'm kind of in the other camp, and he writes a piece that kind of goes against this progressive um, group, and it's kind of more of a, a classical symphony that you might have heard from Mendelssohn or Schumann. Um, so that's just kind of a broad overview. It's in, well, it technically is in two movements, even though it, basically there are actually four, and the first and second are lighted, as are the third and fourth. And and I guess the last thing I would say before we dive in is that a lot of French music at this time, and the symphonies in particular, were concerned with being some way cyclical. Um, So we'll get a kind of recurring motif throughout the whole piece, um, which is these composers' way of kind of trying to tie things together, um, even as they get more adventurous in the other things that they're doing. Yeah, I I have to admit that your description of uh, what you thought of this piece before you looked at it a little bit more is pretty much an exact description of what I thought of this piece until maybe a day ago when you suggested this. And (laughs) still, because I think it, yeah, I mean, I don't know what it is about Saint-Saëns. You clump him in a group with, like you said, composers like Franck. um, And I even think of other, like, later French composers like... Honegger, these people, these people yeah, who right. you just don't really think of their music as as substantial as other things going on at that time. But looking a little more at this piece, I'm glad you chose it because 
as you said to me, it's it's really it's a very good piece, but there's also a lot of interesting stuff in here. So I'm I'm curious. I'm not fully convinced, and so I'm hoping by the end of the podcast, I will be fully convinced. I'll see what I can do. Yeah, I'm a tough. I'm a. I think if you can sell me on it, then you can sell our <laughs> listeners. So that's yeah. All right. So should we let's start looking at some of the music? Let's dive in. Yeah. Okay. So we, we're going to start with uh, right at the beginning of this this first movement. I'll play a little clip, and then we can hear your thoughts. It's a good point. I mean, in keeping with these kind of stereotypes that we might have had about Saint-Saëns, a lot of these, when I think of the Franck Symphony, very long-winded, it seems. Some of these other late romantics, the Elgar Symphony is very long-winded. One thing I was surprised about with this entire symphony is its efficiency and and tautness. And so, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty quick. And maybe we should... Sorry, go ahead. And the only thing, other thing I was going to say is what the the faster section really reminds me of, honestly, is is kind of Mendelssohn, Midsummer Night's Dream, fairy music kind of thing. Um, and he does it in the, in a slightly different way than obviously Mendelssohn would have, but it gives the same kind of lightness and effervescence um, that that I'm accustomed to with earlier classical stuff. Yeah, it does sound very. I, I I hadn't made that connection, but it sounds very similar to like Overture to Midsummer Night's Dream. One other thing we should point out just very quickly that you mentioned already is that this symphony is cyclic. And just so I can, I can play it for our listeners on the piano, the main, the main melody we hear is... Which we've... If you're an avid listener to the podcast, you've heard before. That is the beginning of the Dies Irae chant, which goes... which is kind of a universal musical symbol for death. It was a, it's a Gregorian chant that they sing to the DSRA text. And so we'll keep that in the back of our minds as we continue to hear this, this cyclic theme. So then we get the, the second theme in our sort of sonata movement here. And so let's, let's listen to that as well. We should mention that this is, as you said already, this is 
a classical sort of symphony in many ways, one being that, again, we have a real sonata form of sorts here. We had our introduction, albeit short introduction, primary agitated uh, theme, more lyrical second theme. So then we come naturally to the next section in our sonata form, the development. Let's listen to a little bit of that as well. It's uh, like you said, it's it's what we would expect, harmonic development and some thematic development. But also I was noticing in this piece a lot of what we might call textural development of like we started with this very fast scherzando idea. And now it's this unison, sparse rhythm, same theme, but very different texture. So then it develops more. And we come to this big um, crescendo, this big building of energy to end the development. And let's listen to that as we finally come back to the recapitulation, the return of this, this primary theme. So, Sasha, I'm curious to ask, we hear this big building, and then right at the end there, we heard the return to this DSRA idea. Now it's fortissimo as opposed to really soft at the opening. You were saying that you you covered this piece this year, and I'm curious because just my first pass, this is a piece that I have never covered, never conducted. Um, first pass over the score, this spot, the return of the recapitulation, looks incredibly tricky to play because just to give a little uh our listeners don't need to concern themselves too much with this but that's a very tricky what we call syncopation where people are not playing on the beats of music they're playing on what we call the off beats they're playing against the standard beat and this particular one looks incredibly tricky to pull off so i'm curious if if that is the case if this was a tricky thing to rehearse stuff like that yeah it's um it's actually, I find it a really cool part of this movement that he basically takes what you'd expect and offsets it by just a really short amount of time. So you're always kind of struggling to to stay in the right spot. Um, I think it's definitely tricky. It's tricky to do it accurately. Um, it's it's not hard to kind of fudge it, but I think when you get when you to get the real rhythmic power of it. You want to do it super accurately, and that's actually maybe going to mean not too fast, right? That's, yeah. that's kind of my, my thinking. Um, if you try to go too fast, it becomes blurred, and you get this kind of whatever effect. Yeah. But yeah, like you said, right here at the recap, if you can really get the strings to all be playing together syncopated, it can make this feeling that like you've arrived, but still it's not stable. 
Yeah, I actually, I mean, no disrespect to this particular recording, which I guess I won't say what it is, because, but they're, they're fudging it here. I mean, it sounds like they're playing what we call on the beat instead of on the off beat, right. um, which is the easy solution. It reminds me actually of a piece that I think we've mentioned on this podcast before, Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, where there's really one rhythm that goes throughout this entire movement of and when you play this rhythm over and over and over, it's very easy to slip into playing it and actually just playing the wrong rhythm, but a lot easier rhythm. And so as a conductor, you have to just insist over yeah. and over and over. We got to play the right rhythm. And it seems like this is the same type of spot. Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> so, yeah. So then we... <laughs> So we get to hear this recap, albeit a slightly off-kilter recap. We go through a lot of the same ideas, and then we come to the end of the first movement. We hear the second theme again, um, and I'll play for you this clip, and then, uh, Sasha, I'm curious to get your take on this. So what what happened there? We were hearing the second theme, and by the end of that slightly long clip, we're, we're in some completely different place. Yeah. Basically, if you listen to the whole movement the way through, you'll see at the end of the second theme that we just heard to, it seems like it's going on as it should, and then we would maybe expect some sort of coda where you know usually it'll get faster and, and have some sort of loud, exciting ending. Um, instead, he does this really clever thing where he actually kind of melts it away and we get the oboe playing again as it did in the introduction. Um, and he's kind of made it so it feels like we're in the tempo of the introduction and it just kind of slowly dies away. Um, so he's already kind of superseded our expectations about what the end of the movement's going to look like. And it dies away and then suddenly we get the entrance of the organ, which the symphony is is often remembered for, um, in a wildly different key, and it sinks into um, just a really warm, lush sound, and we're actually in the second movement. Well, it not officially, but practically, this is the second movement. It's the slow part of the symphony. Right. As you mentioned, I didn't fully realize this until I looked at the symphony as well, is that the maybe the most famous moment in my mind from this symphony that I, I did know was this spot where the organ first enters and you descend into D-flat major, very distantly related key from, from C minor. Um, right. But it's not actually really the second movement. It's just the second part of the first movement. I'm not sure why he decided to only write... I think... Yeah. Yeah, I think... Um he was kind of like trying to trying to find a fine line between what would be really classical German tradition for movement thing 
um, which people would have thought was maybe kind of old-fashioned. And all the rest of the French composers were all kind of writing three-movement things. Right. If you think of uh, Lefranc and even like Debussy, La Mer, three movements. And so somehow I think he was trying to cheat that um, argument. And so kind of wrote a four-movement thing, but then he kind of made it into two. Um, I think it works pretty well because yeah. it keeps keeps the momentum of the piece moving. Yeah, I, I agree. I actually was, was kind of sold on it. And as we mentioned, as we heard... The first, and if we want to call it the second movement, or this slow section, are played continuously, so there's no no movement pause, and it's it's right. kind of effective in this sort of uh, disintegration of the of the first half of this movement. So then we hear we cut it off, but let's hear the the main theme of the the this second part of the first movement, the slow part, beautiful lyrical theme in in D flat major. That's uh, I'm gonna maybe steal that idea if I ever do this piece. I love that <laughs> like that idea. It's a great image actually, and I hadn't thought of that. But like you said, it's it's everyone singing in unison, not even in octaves, just one register. Beautiful, beautiful moment. So then we hear that phrase played again. This time more by the full orchestra, and we want to play for you that clip as well because it's a really interesting slight transformation of this this opening idea. That's, I mean, that's, that's really, I also hadn't really thought about that idea, but it's, that's, that's a great point is that the, the organ kind of stops playing here, but, um, 
but we get an organ sound from the orchestra. This is something that around the same time this piece was being composed in Austria, Bruckner, one of the most famous organists, had an incredible ability to write symphonies that sound like an organ, despite, if I'm not mistaken, there's no organ in any of Bruckner's symphonies, even though he was an organist and it was seemingly his favorite instrument. So we get a similar effect here. And then we get we get this really interesting passage, also a little bit organ-like, not, not a deep pedal passage from organ, but one of these high little trumpet-like parts of the orbit organ where we hear the two violin sections just playing this wandering melody together. And then we come to a really interesting spot that we'll play for you uh, where the, it seems like the action stops and we hear a hearkening back to something we had heard earlier. Yeah, I think, and it splits the two kind of halves of this movement, because then we go back and hear this this chorale-like theme again, and right. like you said, it, it, it reminds us that the Dies Irae is supposed to have some sort of foreboding, imposing quality to it in and of itself, and so to hear it in this context makes it even more imposing or whatever. So yeah. then, So then we... Here, this main theme stated again, this is maybe the most iconic movement of this symphony because it's the most, it falls most into what you were saying before of this kind of uh, hyper-romantic, lyrical, uh, sappy French writing. But as you mentioned, what I'm going to steal is that maybe we shouldn't (laughs) actually, we shouldn't actually perform it that way. Um, So yeah, any other thoughts on the end of this, this first movement? No, it's just he, he just creates something that, that kind of has a nice arc in it. For me, I like that it doesn't take too long. It's pretty compact, and it brings you in a lot of different directions. Yeah, like you said I, I uh, earlier, and like we've already mentioned, actually a decently compact movement, a decently compact piece. We contrast it with, let's say, Bruckner writing some right. organ-esque symphonies. He would write 25-minute adagios, so... <laughs> This one is nice and and palatable. Yeah. Right. All right. So then we get the second large movement or the quote-unquote third movement, if we want to call it that, which is where we would traditionally expect the scherzo movement or the dance movement. So let's listen to a little bit of the opening of this second, third movement, whatever you want to call it. Some sort of um, kind of dance-like thing, 
Um, in this case, it's really intense energy. We again get the strings in unison um, and super rhythmic. The, the material he's using is is similar to the opening, but not exactly the same. It's rising this time. It goes da 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 even though in the first moment is da da dom. So you know when they're when a composer chooses a motive that's only like four notes a lot of different things start to resemble it um, when yeah. you take advantage of using small materials. But that's, we should point out, there's definitely supposed to be some sort of similarity because we hear these notes. And as you mentioned, now we hear. So right. he's taken it, only those three notes that are the beginning of the head of the DSRA motive and he's changed them up slightly but there's clearly supposed to be some sort exactly. of resemblance even more of this sick cyclicism or whatever the word might be nice i think that's it <laughs> so then let's uh let's listen to what comes immediately next because we might recognize this even more more fully So that one might be a little harder to hear, but but what do we get there? There we got the same the same first movement cyclic material this time in the winds. They went and so in the same way he broke it up before, he's now breaking it up in a different way. It all kind of serves the purpose of hiding its resemblance and yet makes it feel connected to to the whole arc of it. Yeah, that one is also interesting because before we got two note groups and now we get but right. when it's stopped in a different place as you mentioned it's actually really hard to hear that resemblance but it is there um, so then interestingly we're going along in this moderate to slightly fast tempo and then we stumble across this presto section, very, very fast section. Let's listen to a little bit of that music as well. So what is going on here? We we suddenly hear a new instrument jump on the scene, and this is this is weird music. Yeah, it, it kind of goes nuts. Um, this takes the place of, I guess, the trio part, which is going to be the second part of our scherzo movement, um, except it gets faster um, and kind of like a, a wind-up toy that's kind of gone out of control. <laughs> um, he adds a piano this time, which is interesting to use another keyboard instrument besides the organ, and it does this really virtuosic thing that you heard a lot of arpeggios and scales. Yeah, it's a it's a weird like you said. This is this can serve as the sort of B section or trio of our scherzo, but usually those are a little bit slower. Usually they're a little more maybe pastoral or something. This is like right. almost carnival esque um, frantic yes. <laughs> music. So then, interestingly, we get this, amidst this presto, we get this this lyrical melody um, that seems somewhat totally different character from, from what we just heard, this carnival-type music. Um, let's listen to that melody as well. Yeah, this is a really, as you mentioned, I, I hadn't really 
noticed similarly in the first movement where we, in our second theme, we still have that perpetual motion-esque motor going on under it. And same thing going on here amidst these lyrical melodies, we still have the, the, the rhythmic driving force behind it. The only time we didn't have this seemingly was, was the second or the second half of the first movement. Um, so then we, uh, we get the return of the scherzo as usually happens. And this particular movement, like some of Beethoven's scherzos, uh, has two iterations of the trio section. And we hear this trio section, the presto, the really fast music, return again. But this time it's, it's a little different. So let's listen to that return of the trio. So similar to the longer clip we played in the middle of the first movement, it seems like a ton happened there. We were in this carnival-esque uh, trio section, and we ended in this totally different place. So so what happened there? Yeah, so again, right when we expect this movement in a more traditional um, setting to just end, uh, he takes it in a different direction. Um, what we got right at the beginning... Um, of the clip was, I know you've talked about kind of fugues and, and that kind of writing um, on this podcast before, where a lot of different instruments are entering um, with equal importance with the same melody. Um, so we heard first in the trombones and tuba and basses, uh, where it goes, and then it's passed around the whole orchestra. Um, this is a kind of old what they what we would call kind of learned style and it basically harkens back to Bach essentially who was the king of of fugue writing and whenever you see somebody um writing kind of fugato music in symphony it's always kind of with a backwards eye at the at the classical masters so that's another part that that makes this symphony a little more i guess reactionary against the, all the progressives um, but I think he actually does it in a way that's not too stilted, if that makes sense. It actually creates a really beautiful sense, uh, like culminating sense um, for the for the movement. Um, I don't know what you think about that, Jake. Yeah, it definitely, to me, sounds much less... When you get these kind of Bachian fugues in pieces like Magic Flute by Mozart, or this happens in, in Mendelssohn all over the place, they feel very... Ancient, almost in their like right. by, they're they're so academic, so stilted, as you say. And this one is a fugue in the context of the sound world, in the in the context of the presto trio that we're in. I also interested. I mean, I'm not sure if this is this fugue idea is is taken from somewhere. It sounds like something of a chant. All I can right. hear, all I can hear in this is the beginning, which goes. Which to me, when I hear those four notes, it's the beginning of the last movement of the Jupiter Symphony, which very famously goes. Amen. And that's, that last movement of the symphony has one of the most famous fugues. So that's, I, I don't know if he's, he's. That's pretty great. I never heard that, but I definitely buy it now. I don't know if that's what it trying, is. I was trying to trace it because. Um, 
because it's not immediately recognizable. I think it may be coming from the the kind of lush melody we heard earlier in the in the scherzo movement. Yeah. Um, uh, but it definitely has that chant quality um, and kind of the. I guess what you'd, you'd expect to be the normal or first um, demonstration of like the main motive of the symphony. It's not that material, but we'll get it later in a similar context. Yeah, right, right. So anyways, we, we get this music that dissolves again like it did in the, in the first movement. And then I want to play for you the very end of this, if we want to call this the third movement. Let's listen to the very end of this passage as it transitions into the the finale, either the fourth movement or the second part of the second movement. As you mentioned, it's it's again hidden in there a little bit, but we hear same exact idea that we our DSRA theme now in those really low instruments again foreboding, and I cut it off right before the biggest entrance of the organ in this piece, the beginning of the fourth movement. So let's let's listen to this this stunning beginning of the of the last movement. couple spots in this piece where you can immediately recognize it's when the piano plays i think when you realize this is the right. same guy who wrote the carnival of the animals where the piano is so so featured yeah as we were listening uh this is breaking on the podcast hadn't hadn't thought of this until right now but in keeping <laughs> with my in keeping with my jupiter idea we first heard this fugue idea introduced starting on the note of a flat but now we've arrived at our, our first movement was in C minor. We've seen this narrative so many times in Beethoven's fifth, in uh, 
Mahler second, all these pieces that are going C minor to C major. And we've done that again here. And C major is where we get this. The beginning of this movement goes... which is in fact the key of the Jupiter Symphony. So we heard it originally in the wrong key, but now we're hearing the actual notes of the Jupiter Symphony in, uh, in counterpoint. So to me, maybe there's something there that he's... I, I buy it and get yeah. an article, article in your <laughs> There we go. Maybe I should go back, get a PhD, write that. But as you mentioned, let's also illustrate that lyrical theme that we heard. We hear... And we've changed one single note from the beginning. That that third scale degree, the first note we hear, has been raised just slightly, and now it's major, it's ethereal, it's all of those things you mentioned. So a lot happens right in those first first few measures of this last movement. Absolutely. The only other thing I'd add is that, um, to me, this is the second way in which the organ is, is used to evoke something that that I was not expecting. Again, it's we heard it kind of evoking the idea of um, the church in the slow movement, and now it's really always um, associated with the kind of um, classical style, this older tradition of writing um, that comes with all the counterpoint that we've seen. Yeah. Um, and for me, I, I like seeing that as, as an intentional use of the organ rather than just using it as something that kind of adds more heft to already a very heavy kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point, is that the the subtitling of the symphony as organ we're seeing is not just the inclusion of the organ, but it's a narrative subtitling of what the instrument of the organ kind of represents in in right. many different facets. So then we, as in the first movement, we get, and this is sort of an introduction to the main body of the movement, so let's listen to the faster main body movement, uh, music of this, this finale. saying that um, this is the same theme that we heard in the first movement. By now, you can kind of assume everything is pretty much related. Um, now, it's it's in a different rhythm, but it's exactly the same major version of the DSRA thing, and you really get the sense of a light um, classical finale. I'm thinking also of, like, Brahms' two finale that maybe you've talked about here, where you're getting something that's that you would expect to be romantic, but actually they use this more classical style to make it light and kind of energetic. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of Brahms, I always like to give our listeners uh, useless tips that they can use at cocktail parties if they want to seem smart. And I think I know where this is going. Do you? I don't know. Maybe. Let's see. So if, if it's not, then we have two tips to offer. Here's the one that I was going to mention, which is that this idea, the Mozart-Jupiter idea of... is the notes of C, D, F, E. Those are actually the keys in order of the four Brahms symphonies. C, D, F, E. So some people think that Brahms, over the course of his full symphonic output, was paying homage to Mozart by writing the keys of his symphonies as the notes of this Jupiter, Jupiter symphony head. Was that, was that what you were thinking? It was actually. Yeah. Oh, okay, that's too I guess, bad. I was I hoping we we only have a, we only have one trick as conductors. That's a um, that's a good one though to that's offer. That's a good one. It's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So then we uh, uh, we get this fast theme, DSRA related, and then this is also a sort of sonata esque movement where we get a second theme, a contrasting theme. Let's listen to that one as well.
So again, this is another really beautiful second theme from Sessons. One interesting to think about for us conductors is that it's kind of hard material to know what to do with this theme in particular because it's made up of really just small repeated units. It just goes and then it repeats like four times. Yeah. Um, and so just in, this is a different way of thinking about the piece, but one that we always have to do when we're learning music is like, what do you do with that? How do you then make it into something that, that makes sense? Um, and I think that's a challenge of this piece. Do you have an answer? Because I'm trying to just steal all of your performance <laughs> ideas over the course well, of this. I mean, <laughs> I, what I like about this piece as opposed to some of the others around the same time is that harmony is still super important. Um, and, and so each of these happens in a different key and as much as you can like kind of color it to make it a different sort of idea, even though it's the same material, that's all I got. But, no, but that's... I think it's... It's hard to make sense of it always. Yeah, that's good though. I'm, I'm, I'm turning this into just. I think I'm going to use all of these lesser known symphonies episodes as opportunities <laughs> to steal as many performance ideas as I can. Sounds good. <laughs> so then we we things start to broaden out a little bit, and we get uh, some development, if we want to call it that, of the ideas that have been presented now many many times, and it starts to take more the form of a. Uh, uh, a free form finale and we get to hear we hear this DSRA idea yet again this time in the strings let's listen to this passage just a little bit after this this second theme starting to get towards the end of this finale he's just like putting on a compositional clinic of how can I take this one idea and put it in as many different transformations and contexts as possible so then a little later we hear this idea again let's play that for you as well a totally different context here as we're getting towards the end of this movement I think the shining, I know exactly what you're talking about because, of course, when something that's, you watch something that's scary, it gets burned yeah. into your mind. <laughs> but I think, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's just trombones playing this DS era okay. idea. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, for me, I like that he waits until the very end to, to, to put it in its like original form. Yeah. Um, and then it kind of builds and, and goes back into the triumphant thing that we heard before, but for a brief moment, it kind of is looking dark for a second. Yeah, you've touched on some of the many appearances of this 
Diasire idea. It it occurs all over the place. Berlioz Symphony Fantastique, as you mentioned, bunch of Rachmaninoff pieces, Liszt, right. Totentanz. It's super. It's ubiquitous in the classical music world. But as we've mentioned many times, anytime you choose it, there's some sort of connotation of death, foreboding, something like that. So it's interesting that he's taken that idea. We hear it one more time in its minor form here, but really it seems like this symphony is trying to transform that idea to its major counterpart. It's much more triumphant idea. So then we get a fantastic closing to the symphony and let's listen to the very ending just because it's so triumphant, heroic, and here the inclusion of the organ is particularly effective, I think. There's this seeming tradition in C minor or, or like C major pieces that it's the ultimate, you, you have to put in so much effort to transform C minor into C major that once you finally arrive at the final C major, Beethoven's fifth is like this, Schumann two is like this, you get just like C major in your face over and over and over again. That's just, a good point. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I like that. That feels like a good justification. For just it. to confirm that you, yeah, that you've done all this work. That's that's how I justify the ending of Schumann too. Is that right? It feels a little hitting you over the head, but that's one of my all time favorite pieces, and I think it's because it's like we've done so much work to get here. We've earned it. Let's let's celebrate. Right. And as you said, if you want the original example of that last movement of Beethoven Five is. Is, is the best one. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, well, so that's that's Saint-Saëns' Third that's Symphony. Have I convinced you? I think you have. In fact, over the course of this episode, I think I've talked to myself into thinking this is like a masterpiece. So, um, yeah, I'm uh, glad. Yeah, um, I think whether you, whether or not you, you think it's up there with, with all the things that we always consider masterpieces, what I find interesting about conducting, as I'm sure you you agree is like the work we have to always do to if we're conducting it then we have to be the advocate for yeah. it being amazing no matter what even if we hate the piece um so it's an interesting process to always undertake right and i think it's it's actually a really it's a good takeaway for our listeners especially in the context of this series that we're doing of lesser known symphonies which is that that is the ultimate burden of the conductor. In theory, if, if it was an ideal world, you'd only get to program pieces you believe in. That doesn't mean only masterpieces, but, but as is the reality of our life as conductors, especially as young conductors, a lot of times you're doing pieces that you may not actually believe in, and it's still your responsibility to, as you said, be an advocate for the piece and try to present it as well as you can. And so just imagine if listeners did that as well because i think when you dive into a piece as we've done here and as our listeners can see in my own personal transformation over the course of this podcast you know 
you really start loving these pieces the more that you dive into them. And so I think it's a great thing for our listeners to think about as well, in addition to what we have to do, but for listeners to give things benefit of the doubt, to really look into them. And I think there's a lot that you can find often. So with that, Sasha, I want to thank you so much for coming on again. Any uh, last thoughts or um, how are you? Do you have any recommendations for music to listen to during the quarantine or just general strategies of staying oh. sane? Good question. Um, nope. <laughs> yeah, same. Um, I'm just trying to, you know, I got some bikes yesterday from my parents, which was clutch, so I'm really looking forward to getting a little bit of time uh, to actually, like, go somewhere. That would be cool. You know, I've been biking, like, every single day, and I'm actually about to potentially make a massive... It, it's not a good piece of advice in the current economic climate, but I'm con- seriously considering making a impulse okay. buy on, like, a road bike, which is... Well, you'll probably use it more in the next couple months than... That's my thought, ever, is... Ever would otherwise. Why not buy it now? Right. Get it now, I'm going to use it, and then... If I continue to use it, all the better. That's that's my thought. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks again so much for joining us. As always, for our listeners, we thank you for joining us as well. Remember to rate, review, subscribe, give us a comment, let us know what you think, and we will be back shortly with some more lesser-known symphonies. <laughs>